This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the second Battleground podcast of 2024 with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. As the war in Ukraine descends to a tit-for-tat of missile and drone strikes, the majority, needless to say, fired from Russia, the New York Times has published an extraordinary op-ed by a member of its editorial board calling for Ukraine to engage in negotiations with and cede territory to Russia after reports emerged that Russian President Vladimir Putin is using back channels and intermediaries to signal his interest in a ceasefire. Meanwhile, our own Times newspaper has a fascinating piece which suggests a change in strategy by the West in Ukraine. It quotes a senior Whitehall official saying that Britain and other European countries are, quote, cranking through the gears to ensure they can help Ukraine win its war against Russia without the US should Donald Trump get into power. The same source insists that some in the UK government believe that all that is needed to win against Putin is time, and Europe needs to be ready to push on without US support. We'll discuss the significance of all this and the latest news from Gaza. Uh, But first of all, what have you learned about these missile and drone strikes? Well, the trigger seems to have been the sinking of the Russian amphibious ship by Storm Shadow missiles that we mentioned last week. Russia responded on the 29th of December with a massive attack by 120 missiles of various types and 36 suicide drones. It seems that the drones distracted Ukrainian air defences, allowing many of the ballistic and hypersonic missiles to get through, killing 30 and wounding more than 150 across Ukraine. Kyiv described the strikes, which left apartment blocks wrecked and blew holes in a maternity hospital, as a wake-up call to the West. So what did the West say about all of this? Well, US President Joe Biden's response was that Putin, and I quote, must be stopped, and that Congress needed to take action so that weapons and vital air defence systems can be sent to Ukraine. The UK reacted in a more practical way by vowing to send hundreds of air defence missiles to Ukraine almost immediately, an announcement that was brought forward after the Russian strikes. The Ukrainians themselves responded with rare missile attacks on the Russian border city of Belgorod, 
that killed more than 20 people, many of them incinerated in their cars at a busy road junction. Now, this prompted a Russian response on Saturday, uh, where they fired missiles into the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, including a hotel frequented by foreign journalists. And so it's gone on. These attacks have continued over the last few days, with more strikes by Russia on Kyiv and other cities. Ten Kinzhal hypersonic missiles were shot down by Patriot air defense batteries over the capital on Tuesday morning, and Ukraine retaliating with yet more missiles fired against Belgorod, killing one and wounding five, and also Sevastopol in Crimea. But it's a dangerous game for Ukraine to get involved with, don't you think, Patrick? Yes, it's a difficult one, isn't it, Saul, for the Ukrainian leadership? On the one hand, they've got to maintain their status as the good guys in the conflict, firmly in command of the high moral ground, which by and large uh, they've been able to do until now, and that's been a, a vital component in maintaining Western support. But on the other hand, there's only so much of this provocation that the leadership and the people can take, and the politicians also have to take account of the feelings of the, their citizens. There's an understandable desire for retribution, for revenge, and after a, a point that sort of becomes unignorable, doesn't it? Having said that, I don't really think that Washington, London, and uh, Europe are going to be too surprised or shocked by this, and I don't think it's going to affect support. I think the bigger danger is the likelihood that it will solidify Russian popular support for the war. I mean, Putin's been telling them all along that Russia is under threat. And even though Ukraine's barely landed a blow on Russian soil, now it has. And all this propaganda BS uh, is, is at least temporarily become a reality. Well, we mentioned at the top the bizarre op-ed uh, in the New York Times, which has, let's face it, hardly been a bastion of pro-Ukraine support. It called for Ukraine not to pass up the opportunity to achieve a ceasefire by beginning negotiations with Russia to end the war, and also to consider the fact that it's got to cede some territory. This call has been prompted by reports that Putin uh, is using back channels and intermediaries to indicate his interest in a ceasefire. The op-ed argues that Ukraine does not need to regain all its territory to emerge victorious from the war. Now, this is an argument we've heard from some of our guests, isn't it, Saul, uh, that all, they've already effectively won, that a strong, independent, prosperous and secure Western-oriented Ukraine is now a uh, in prospect, which is a kind of victory. But as our old friends, the Institute for the Study of War points out, this, uh, this view largely ignores near-constant Kremlin signaling of Russia's continued maximalist goals in Ukraine, and there are multiple reasons to believe that Putin's pro-ceasefire signaling may not be sincere um, because of the endless uh, you know, litany of broken promises and lies that, that have come from Moscow in the past. There are conflicting voices coming out of Russia because on the 29th of December, you've got the deputy chairman of the Russian Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, who's a sort of you know, massive uh, Putin supporter, and sort of voice of Vladimir, uh, he's saying the war is going to continue and that Russia's goals in Ukraine remain the disarmament of Ukrainian troops, which is pretty much in line with what Putin was saying himself before. W what occurs to me, Saul, is that it's uh, it, this is really just a kind of another bit of confusion, isn't it? So and if you're trying to pursue your long-term strategy of undermining Western support, this is not a bad way of, of doing it. It's another strand in the 
in the strategy of suggesting to to the West that you are actually reasonably serious about peace and that hopefully they will then take the foot off the pedal uh, on the arms supply front. Anyway, what's, what's your reading of it? Well, uh, more useful idiots helping out the Russians, in my view, Patrick. It reminds me a little of the so-called realists in Churchill's cabinet, his foreign secretary, Lord Halifax included, telling him that he needed to consider a negotiated peace with Hitler via the intermediaries of Italy uh, as the Dunkirk evacuation was underway. And that, of course, is in late May 1940. Fortunately, as we know, Churchill preferred to listen to his military chiefs who said they could resist a German invasion. And we know what happened next. Well, uh, needless to say, it's never a good idea to try to negotiate from a position of weakness, which is where Ukraine is compared to a year ago, comparatively speaking, of course. But all is not yet lost, as the piece you mentioned in The Times makes clear. It's written by Larissa Brown, the defence correspondent, who I interviewed on my Military History Club podcast last year about a book she'd written about Afghanistan. Uh, But this piece quotes a senior Whitehall source suggesting that Europe alone can keep Kiev in the fight and that all is needed to win against Putin is time. The source said he's betting on the House of Trump, but Europe is cranking through the gears to do it without the US if Trump were to try and pull the plug. Can continental Europe afford to fold just because Trump says no more US dollars? I think most realise that Putin can't be allowed to win as the consequences for European security are grave. Now, one route to victory, according to this source, is to stretch Putin and his army so thinly he's forced to give up. After all, said the source, Putin is unable to sustain the war indefinitely. He added, 2024 isn't about big operational success. There's unlikely to be a big breakthrough this year. 2024 is about stretching Putin into 2025 and beyond, effectively calling his bluff and testing his resolve. Well, we've come a long way from last year, haven't we, Patrick? And it sounds like a reversal of tactics, of course. Then hopes were high that Ukraine might be able to defeat Russia on the battlefield. But as Phil O'Brien, our good friend of the podcast, keeps pointing out, wars are rarely won on the battlefield alone. They tend to be won by the side that can keep going the longest. And Ukraine at least if it has Europe's support, is actually in a reasonably strong position. Now, as we said last week, Russia can't ignore the economic pain this war is inflicting indefinitely. Inflation is rampant, and increasing the spend on the war to 40% of the Russian government's budget, as it's just announced it intends to do, will store up trouble down the line. Then there are the casualties, estimated to be up to half a million by the end of the year, if they continue at the current rate of 300 a day. So, With all this in mind, it might not be such a foolish strategy after all. Stay on the defensive, preserve lives, and let Russia bleed itself to death. What's your view on this, Patrick? Well, I think it's probably the only um, realistic option now, isn't it, Saul? We all had such high hopes for that summer offensive, perhaps too high hopes, looking back at it, realistically speaking, without the kit actually being placed at the start of the sort of campaigning season then its uh, outcome was always going to be a bit uncertain. And now here we are, you know, it's basically has totally ground to a halt and no one's talking about a new one in the spring. So that, I think, is um, the way it's probably going to go and it could be that the path to victory is effectively playing Putin's own game, isn't it? Time, general time is going to decide this and the combined will, economic and military and financial resources of your backers. So you've got a little bit of a parallel with the uh, 
with the Second World War there. So it, it ultimately will come down to European resolve, which has been pretty solid, hasn't it? Given that, you know, the European Union is, is a sort of very multi-headed organization, you know, people have generally pulled in the right direction. You've got people like Maloney popping up who seem to kind of throw a spanner in the works and then they don't. So, yeah, I mean, here's, here's hoping. Okay, well, we're going to um, switch to Gaza now. I'm not going to say too much about Gaza for reasons I'll explain a little later on. But uh, just to update you on what's uh, coming out uh, of the news there, the IDF has announced it's going to be withdrawing troops and tanks from some areas of Gaza City as it shifts to more targeted operations. So called against Hamas in the northern Gaza Strip. This will take six months at least and involve intense mopping up operations an Israeli official told Reuters. Well, actually, one reflection, quick reflection on that, is that, you know, northern Gaza was meant to have been pacified and conquered, wasn't it, some weeks back? But clearly, that is not the case. Further afield, the US are now attacking Houthi rebels. These are the Shia rebels in Yemen who've been attacking neutral shipping in the Red Sea. The US Navy's already been in action, uh, sinking three small Houthi vessels and killing 10 of their fighters. Uh, Well, I'm not going to go on too much about this because uh, I want to draw listeners' attention to an interview I did with um, an old colleague of mine, Tim Butcher, who was Middle East correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, based in Israel back in 2006. And then he covered uh, the Israeli-Hezbollah war when the IDF went into South Lebanon to, in response to provocations uh, by the Hezbollah forces there, starting a war that lasted nearly 40 days, caused immense destruction. And according to Tim, and I think most people would agree with him, this was a, uh, has provided a sort of template for the IDF tactics in Gaza. He speaks very eloquently about all this, very passionately about all this, and with um, close personal knowledge, he was actually there on the ground while the fighting was going on. So that interview will be going out very shortly. And that, that, I think, will shed quite a lot of light on what's going on in Gaza now. Uh, Tim's got some real, really good insights and some very good thoughts about the general situation and about how things are going to develop. So look out for that. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering listeners' questions, and particularly on the subject of Gaza, which has sparked some passionate responses. Hello, welcome back. Uh, Well, we're going to start off with a question from Michael Ritson in the Netherlands. He says, hello, gentlemen, in episode 118, Patrick remarked that the destruction of the landing ship in Theodosia, this is the Russian landing ship destroyed by a storm shadow, I believe. Is that right, Saul? That's right, yeah. Anyway, he, I said at the time it didn't hold much military significance compared to its political significance. Michael wants to, as he puts it, offer my two cents about that matter. He says Russia has been using its supply and landing ships to ferry military supplies into Crimea, Hence why it exploded so magnificently. If you look at the numbers and types of ships sunk, it's noticeable that Ukraine is targeting the bigger ships, those that could be used to ferry supplies, ammunition, men and material across the Kerch Strait if the bridge was taken out. And I think that is what the Ukrainians are working towards, says Michael. Destroy their fleet, take down the bridge, 
for good this time, hamper the Russian supply lines in the south and try to cut off the land bridge. Crimea might as well be an actual island if that comes to pass. In this scenario, Ukraine does not need to batter themselves against fortress Crimea, but bleed it dry. That sounds quite plausible to me. Saul, what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Following on from the remarks from the Whitehall official, which we've already been discussing this morning, it it does seem that the most sensible strategy now is to kind of hold their lines, not batter their heads against a brick wall, but really try and isolate the Russians in the place where they are most vulnerable. And there is no location more obvious than that than Crimea. So it might well be that the recent call, in fact, just in the last couple of days, Patrick, for longer range missiles. I know the Ukrainians have been saying this for a long time, but you can see why they're going to want to use these missiles, not so much uh, for air defense, but to try and deal with these targets much deeper behind enemy lines, and in particular in relation to Crimea. So I think Michael's got a point. The sinking of that uh, amphibious ship, which of course can carry an awful lot of supplies to Crimea if they can't get over the bridge, is actually quite important. And and what we're seeing is the gradual destruction or at least removal of the Black Sea fleet from its ability to assist operations in the Crimea uh, and of course those occupied territories just to the north of Crimea. So Michael's got a point and it could all be part of this new strategy. Okay, we've got an email from Johan in the UK. Now, he's flagged up. He's given us the link to a video uh, that he wanted to share with us on YouTube. And it really is fascinating. It's an interview with a Russian woman who's in her 80s. And what she says, says Johan, is eye-opening and very interesting. And it is indeed, because I listened to it. And it's just a, you know, kind of run-of-the-mill interview. What are you, what are you thinking about the elections? Um, you know, what's your attitude to the fact that opposition leaders are not being allowed to stand against Putin? And the woman is just absolutely upfront honest about what's going on. She says, our people are just dumb and slavish. Uh, there will be in no election. The results are already predetermined. And I love the final line she comes out with, people were serfs and now they're slaves. So it's a really kind of honest appraisal from her about what is going on. And we talk a lot, Patrick, don't we, about the fact that particularly the elderly in Russia have been, you know, taken in by the propaganda of Putin on the television and, you know, pretty much everywhere else they get it from. Uh, but n- not a bit of it, actually. This woman is absolutely on the ball as to what's going on. Uh, and she's not having any of it. And she was also, oddly enough, perfectly happy to give her name, completely without fear that there may- might be some response. And what's interesting about this email is it chimes in with another one from David from London, who uh, actually flags up an interview that the BBC's uh, Steve Rosenberg did with a number of people in Russia. And again, the comments are so revealing. I've seen interviews by BBC correspondents before, earlier on in the war, in which they said, no, we just don't want to talk. But this, you get a series of interviews with with middle-aged people, one saying our government deceives us, that's what worries me. She goes on to talk about government officials uh, being corrupt. Another woman says, I have no pension and I hope the war ends soon. And then a man uh, comes on and says, the main thing we hope is that the war ends soon because our younger generation is being killed. So all the things that we think are bound to be issues for Putin in the longer term are beginning to appear openly in this interview. And that personally, Patrick, gives me a little bit of hope uh, that the tide of public opinion might be beginning to turn in Russia. Yeah, these, these are interviews that Steve Rosenberg did near Moscow. Yeah, exactly. Not far from Moscow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a great man, Steve Rosenberg, isn't he? I mean, he's, uh, 
he's still there. You know, he he manages to do brilliant reporting like this, uh, while at the same time, uh, you know, many, without actually being kicked out, which you know so many other journalists have. So. I hope when all this is over, Steve is properly uh, rewarded. He should get his least worth of knighthood, I would have thought. He's also a brilliant pianist, by the way. Um, anyway, on to Simon, who asks, what's the significance of the Houthis in Yemen and their increasing attacks on shipping in the Red Sea? Are they just well-armed pirates, he asks, or a significant regional player? Well, the answer is, yeah, the Houthis are significant regional players, Simon. They get their name from the Houthi tribe. They, most of their members are Houthis. They're Sunnis, uh, mainly from the Sada governorate of Yemen. And they're basically fighting a lot of people. <laughs> They've been fighting the Saudis who are right on their border since 2015. They've also, they're sworn enemies of, uh, of Israel, of the US. And of course, the crucial point is they're backed by Iran. They're, they're pretty much an Iran creation, a bit like well, not a bit like, very much like Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, with whom they're sort of pretty much allies. So these uh, attacks on shipping are, I think, a little kind of bit of uh, theatre, really, by and large, just, just for all orchestrated by Iran, of course, uh, to show that they're kind of, you know, just stirring things up where and when they can, but without, and this is very important, without actually provoking Israel or the U.S., into some full-blooded response. We've, we've heard earlier about the uh, US Navy getting involved there, sinking a few Houthi ships and all the rest of it. But Iran, this is all part of, uh, this is really the kind of disruption podcast territory, isn't it? It's all part of this. Nothing uh, ever happens without it being linked to something else in global conflicts these days, and particularly in this part of the world. So yeah, the Houthis are there basically in the role of, of troublemakers on the fringes of the Israel-Gaza conflict at the moment, I would say. Yeah, I mean, of course, there is a practical consequence to the Houthis' action, which they're well aware of, Patrick, as indeed Iran is. And that, of course, is the uh, is the forcing of a lot of trade not to come through the Red Sea. And I was looking at the statistics, and something like 12% of all seaborne trade comes through, ultimately, the Suez Canal. Uh, and as a result, uh, if, if ships are not coming that way, then prices are going to go up in the West. And that's really what's going on here. This is this is the sort of disruption that will ultimately have an economic impact on the West and therefore increase the leverage of the Houthis and Iran, uh, partly disorder for the sake of itself, but also just to give more of a bargaining position. So it's you know it seems like they're just creating a little bit of trouble on the fringes, but actually the consequences can be quite significant. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. Um, but I think because the stakes are pretty high, you know, the Houthi Navy is not really one of, one of the great navies <laughs> of the world. And there are, there are, you know, something that, that I was uh, thinking about the other day is that there, you know, naval power is increasing all over the all over the globe. Everyone is building big navies, and they most of the time they haven't got much to do. So this is one area where uh, right-minded nations can actually put their their idle navies to good work. On the, sort of on the same subject, there's one from Alan here in Manchester. Do you think Israel will go back into southern Lebanon to deal with Hezbollah, or were they too stung by their last disastrous expedition there to attempt a ground offensive in Lebanon? Well, that's a reference to 2006, the uh, Israel-Hezbollah war there, which 
Tim Butcher talks about uh, at length in this special interview I did with him. So you can hear all about that there. But I think the very short answer, Alan, is I think the Israelis have got their hands full at the moment. And uh, they are uh, one lesson they have learned from 2006 is uh, is the difficulty of going into uh, the great difficulty of going into South Lebanon, and and also, of course, they'll have at the forefront of their mind the old military maxim about the inadvisability of waging a war on two fronts. Okay, we've got an email here from Fraser Robinson. He says, uh, Dear Saul and Patrick, I'm a long-term listener to your podcast, but I'm unlikely to continue to listen to it unless you modify your stance on the genocide, ethnic cleansing, war on kids, whatever you want to call it, taking place in Gaza. Well, the first thing, I'll let you respond in a minute in more detail, Patrick, but the first thing I'm going to say, Fraser, is uh, we don't take too kindly to blackmail, frankly. And if you, if there are things on the podcast you find unacceptable when, after all, we're just trying to lay out the facts in as uh, honest and in as objective way as possible, then that's your decision. You can obviously uh, turn off your feed. But we also feel a responsibility to try and see things from both perspectives. Now, he goes on to say, I refer in particular to such things as your description of Hamas as a terrorist organization, while not using the same term for the IDF and the government of the state of Israel. He goes on to say, serious war crimes are openly espoused by the likes of Ben Gavir and Smotrich, uh, both, of course, hard right members of the Israeli cabinet. Are we supposed to give them the benefit of the doubt? It seems to me to be that in respect to the war in Ukraine and the killing in Gaza, there are two morally equivalent positions, support for Ukraine and support for the Palestinians. The number of Palestinians that have been massacred in Gaza, about a thousand children a week, is vastly greater as a proportion of the population than the number of Ukrainians killed since February 2022. He goes on to say the 7 October attack committed by Hamas was a revolting monstrosity and Hamas is a repugnant and evil organization. But I find it hard to believe that all the children butchered by the Israelis since then were members. The mass killing of civilians in Gaza is a moral emergency of historic magnitude. If you are so clearly on the right side in Ukraine, what is stopping you from more vehement condemnation of Israel and the IDF, as well as their US backers and suppliers? Patrick, what's your view on all of that? Well, just to add a few date, details about the two individuals uh, Fraser is referring to, that's Itamar Ben-Gavir and uh, Bezalel Smotrich, both of whom I think can be fairly described as um, as right-wing racists. They favour kicking out most, if not all, of the Palestinians off their land and resettling, resettling with Jews. So, um, you know, pretty sort of grim duo, and they're not just some fringe crazies uh, with no following. They're at the very heart of Netanyahu's government. Smotrich is Minister of Finance and Ben Gavir is Minister of National Security. Uh, they're openly delighted with what's going on in Gaza. Uh, and Smotrich the other day called for all the Palestinians there now to be resettled elsewhere to make room for Israeli settlers, of whom he is one himself. Anyway, to get back to your central point, Fraser, I do echo what Saul said about, you know, our job here is to elucidate, to lay out the facts uh, as we see them, to try and, you know, look beneath them and just, you know, it's, it's listeners can make up their own minds. But, you know, I will speak personally about my own thoughts about it. Um, and I think I did uh, react differently initially, at least, to Israel's conduct in Gaza than I did to Russian war crimes in Ukraine. And there's a simple reason for this. And in one word, it's the Holocaust. Uh, Non-Jewish 
people of my vintage who are Zionists uh, in the sense that they believe there should be an Israel, a secure Israel, a free Israel, an Israel where Jewish people can live their lives without fear. You know, that that's something that, that I feel very strongly. So I've always tried to see Israel's point of view out of sympathy for the Jewish people's long history of repression and persecution. And I think I put this in practice during the time I reported from Israel during the first intifada. I always did try and understand the Israeli perspective. Well, the appalling events of the 7th of October quite rightly triggered a huge wave of sympathy for Israel and revulsion towards Hamas. But having said that, I think the subsequent uh, IDF campaign in Gaza, I'm afraid, uh, I don't think it can be justified. And I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, sympathize with Israel who, who feel the same. I think we're entitled to hold Israel to the moral standards that it claims for itself. And what's happening now is that they're inflicting, the IDF's inflicting appalling suffering and trauma in pursuit of an unrealizable goal. As you say, many thousands of women and children have been killed and how many more will be dead before a halt is finally called. So yes, I, I think this conduct is just wrong and it's only going to bring shame on the IDF and weaken Israel's position in the world while pushing this prospect of any kind of peaceful coexistence with Israel's Palestinian neighbors so far into the future as to be all but invisible. But I do come back to the point that, we, you know, we're not here to tell people what to think. We lay out the facts. And I think being vehemently on one side or, or the other is not actually going to help people understand. That's part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, the, the fact that this issue has become such a divisive one, such a partisan one, that in a reason of moderation, again, as, as uh, Tim Butcher says very forcefully and eloquently, in his interview, are oh, just they're not on the field, are they? They're not in play. And that's desperately what we need now, if any good is ever going to emerge from all this. Yes, well said, Patrick. And just to illustrate how divisive the whole issue is, we've got a follow up email from Andrew Taylor, who uh, writes I listened to one of your episodes this morning on the Israel Gaza situation and would like to make a couple of comments. Regarding the Allied bombing of Germany during the war, you equated how many people had died in the UK during the Blitz with, with the much higher number that died in Germany in the following years. This is a false equivalence and fails to acknowledge the millions who were killed by indiscriminate actions of the German military in countries who were totally unable to retaliate on their own account. And he goes on to say further, you compared the Israeli actions in Gaza with the actions of Hamas on the 7th of October. Almost 2,000 were murdered by Hamas that day. If such an attack had been made on the US or the UK or any other country, and the equivalent number per population were murdered in such a heinous way, those countries would have certainly responded aggressively. Can you imagine if someone attacked the US and murdered 40,000 people, the per capita equivalent in such a way, given that Afghanistan was the result of less than 10% of that number being murdered, I suspect that the American response would have been substantially more aggressive, just saying. Otherwise, keep up the good work. Uh, as an ex-military intelligence member of 26 years, I have been impressed with your insights and information. Well, we're not going to get drawn into dealing with the specific comments that Andrew has made, but I just think it is interesting to see how strongly people feel on both sides of the argument. Yeah, and, and how the same situation can produce a completely different analysis. You know? So there we are. Um, 
Okay, well, we're going to start wrapping up now. Um, just want to mention something, an approach we got from a chap called Tom Atkinson, who's a photographer. He's working on a fascinating project called the Military Inventory Project. Now, this is basically trying to uh, do a sort of visual record of what uh, soldiers take into battle. He's done similar things in the past with a First World War soldier, and he's now planning to do something with a Ukrainian soldier. Now, he was reaching out to us in the hope we might be able to help with a Ukrainian contact who could help him to photograph what actually a uh, Ukrainian infantier would take into battle these days. Well, uh, the obvious person we would have turned to is uh, Colonel Hazan, who's uh, recuperating at the moment, so he's probably not... Uh, in a position to help. But if there's anyone out there who can uh, think of someone who might help Tom with his project, please do get in touch with us and we'll pass it on. Now, before I go, I'm just going to flag up again that interview with uh, Tim Butcher, which will be going out on Monday. And Saul is going to let you know of other delights that are in store. Yes, we're continuing with the Battle 44 series with the first big set piece, and that's the arrival of Ike Eisenhower in the UK. Uh, huge events are going to be unfolding, uh, and he's got a lot of absolutely key decisions to make. So we'll be discussing who he is, where he's come from, and what he does next. If you could please send in listeners' questions to podbattleground at gmail.com, everything from the current conflicts and also to the history of 1944, that would be great. Uh, and join us also on Friday next week when we'll be carrying on with the latest from Ukraine and Gaza and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.